Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Could you tell us about getting this role? I understand that you really wanted this role. You really went after the role of Alex Forrest. Well, kind of yes and no. I read the script, and I couldn't put it down. It was a really good read, but I was kind of put off by the bunny boiling. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think it was real. I thought it was exploitive Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of far out. But then I couldn't get out of my mind. I, I, I couldn't get the story out of my mind, and I kept thinking of that character and after a couple of days I told my agent I think I'd like to go for this and I met Stanley Jaffe who was with Sherry Lansing one of the producers and I met him at a hotel in New York it was summer and I had this little summer dress on and I think I even had a little hat on I can't remember (laughs) and uh, I must have said something that intrigued him but Mm. the next thing I had to do was go to California and do a session on video with Adrian Lyne and Michael Douglas, which for an actor is just death. It's just awful. You walk into a room and there's a video camera and you want to kill yourself. <laughs> and um, I didn't know what to wear. My hair was actually long at the time. I did go out and buy a, a great black cotton dress. And it was the 80s, so it had big shoulders. <laughs> and it had a big, very cool elastic belt on the waist so it made you look like you had very small waist so I had these big shoulders and a small waist and a kind of flared skirt <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with my hair I never know what to do with my hair obviously and I thought oh should I straighten or put it back and I said I just, just let it go wild and so I, I went there and um, I had actually had some surgery and was still kind of in a little bit of pain I was, I was very very nervous and I took some Valium. <laughs> and I do not do well doing this. Like and I remember kind of staggering across the, uh, the parking lot to get to this audition thinking, this is going to be a total disaster. Hmm. And I walked in, and, and I think on the uh, director's version DVD, hmm. right. you can actually see what they say is a rehearsal, this- but it's actually my audition on video. The film. Now, the legend was that there were, was skepticism that this was the right role for Glenn Close because you would play more wholesome characters. Could you talk about... Is that... Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'd done Jenny Fields and I'd done, you know, the big chill who was the mother figure. And I'd done the, the natural who was the angelic good woman. Right. And Hollywood being Hollywood, they wondered if I could be sexy. And to me, it was just such a silly question. I just had never played a role where they were asked to be sexy. So mm-hmm. I think in their minds, that was a big big question. Talk about the process of making this character realistic. She's an outrageous character, but I don't think the film would work if you didn't believe it in some way. When I got the part, I went back to the bunny thing, which I (laughs) still was a problem. And uh, so what I decided to do was to give the script to two psychiatrists because Hmm. I wanted to know, first of all, if that behavior was possible 
and then hmm. if it was possible, what would create that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. And I've never done as rigorous research on a character. Hmm. And I ended up loving her. I don't think I ever asked the writer, but both of these doctors that I talked to said hmm. it was basically textbook hmm. behavior for a woman who had been incested pre-memory at a very, very early age. And the damage that's done to women that Mm. that has happened to Mm. was exactly her behavior. They changed the ending. Originally, she didn't get a knife in her hand. Originally, she cut her her throat. She killed herself. She was self-destructive, and that's who that character was. And that ending was just didn't test well or was not satisfying to audiences, why was that ending changed? Because being America, we like the family to stay intact. We like right. happy endings. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she was so upsetting. I, I, it was a time in the 80s that this film became a phenomenon right. because it touched a very raw, unexpressed, hidden nerve uh, having to do with gender, with men and women. And, and I think she upset people so much that they didn't like the fact that she even got away through suicide. They needed revenge. They needed that catharsis. So they basically came back to me and said, we're going to kill you. I mean, basically, the audience (laughs) wanted my blood, and the the, uh, reshoot gave them my blood. It was terrible for me. And I think total betrayal of who that woman was. What about the response to the film? Because the film, A, it was a great box office success, but it also sparked a lot of debate. There were, I'm sure, people who felt that Alex was portrayed as the villain and was a negative portrayal of a strong... Well, she, I never thought of her as the woman. villain. I mean, right. you know, I was just trying to portray this certain very specific character yeah. that I had grown to love very much. In your wildest dreams, you can't imagine that anything would have that kind of response. So that was thrilling. What was shocking to me was the feminists who hated her, you know, and and the the terrible, violent reaction. It was shocking to me because they said this is not good for single, working women. And and I said, well, she's she's not every single working woman. She's a very specific woman. So that kind of was shocking to me. And yet, when I went to the Oscars, there was this huge phalanx of women with Alex Forrest hair, you know, <laughs> screaming for her. So, you know, she became, in some ways, this hero to some people. I don't know if it's just over time, but she really seems like the most dynamic and alive character in the film. I mean, she's the most sympathetic character in a way. I find her very, I, th- I find her heartbreaking, you know, because I understood, even with the ending, with the new ending, you mm-hmm. know, I still think she was a character in great pain. It's funny, in, in the process of filmmaking as an actor, you really have no control. You're very much at the mercy of the final edit, and sometimes finance. For example, there's a scene that, that occurs quite early on in the film where I'm sitting on the floor turning the lamp on and off. That was a scene which came about because I went to Adrian Lyne kind of two-thirds of the way through the film saying, I'm afraid the audience is going to forget that this is a human being in pain. And we shot that scene to be at the very end of the movie. But where they put it in was where a, a scene had been written where you saw me at the opera, an empty seat next to me listening to Madame Butterfly, which of course is the jilted woman who kills herself, 
And I kept saying to Stanley, when are we going to shoot that? When are we going to shoot that? And he said, oh, no, we'll do it, we'll do it. Well, of course, they ran out of money, and they never shot it. So during the bowling game, they put this other scene that actually had been for the end of the movie in the beginning of the movie, and it killed me Hmm. because it made her crazy much too soon, just out of control and, and desperate. That whole thing was not meant to be in the beginning of the movie, but, you know, obviously I had no control over it. I would think one of the fun things about doing this role was that it's sort of about acting in a way. I love the scene early on when, after Michael Douglas fakes a heart attack, and then you come and tell that story about seeing your father die. And it's just an act. And these constant switches that go on and unexpected changes. I'm assuming that was a lot of fun to do. And that's, that's... Yeah, that was fun, but it's also... <laughs> Well, my secret story was yeah. the father that she talks about is the one who had abused her. It's, he's a very problematic figure for her, and he finds out at the very end that her, her father is indeed dead because then yeah. she says, no, he didn't die. Then, hmm. But he's right. obviously somebody that she cannot come to terms yeah. with, that it's uh, probably who, who haunts her, and she makes jokes about it. And yet you find out at the end that he sees the article Right, that's right. But he's actually dead. So in terms of of your process, then, you really keep these stories and thoughts. I think I read in one interview with you that you you have thoughts that the character would have that might not be expressed in dialogue, but they're just running through your head. Right. And that comes across, I guess. Starting out in theater, I was very intimidated when I first was given the, the opportunity to be in film. It was The World According to Garp, and I didn't know what to do with my energy which mm. I had been used to projecting to the back of a theater, and if you do that on film, you'll blow the camera out, yeah. you know? <laughs> so I felt very in limbo, and, and then you tend to kind of do too little, yeah. and it, it took me a while. It was actually during the Big Chill, during a scene with Joe Beth Williams, where I'm talking about Alex, the character that's killed himself, that I started having an inkling of how powerful thought is on camera if it's captured in your eyes yeah. if the director has put the camera in the right place a true thought is as powerful as dialogue and um, you know silence and all that can be extremely powerful and I, and I think it's good to have secrets and Alex is not explained or her behavior is not explained at all they went to great lengths to try to make Michael as sympathetic as possible <laughs> and they didn't do much for me <laughs> but that was okay you know that was that was the premise from the beginning now you've said we were talking a bit upstairs about how one of the important parts of your process is costumes is, is sort of finding your character through externals and through costumes could you talk about that maybe in general but also specifically with this film how that helped you <laughs> i go around in blue jeans and old t-shirts and I, I wouldn't even know where to shop for Alex for us, so I find in film especially where you don't have much of a rehearsal process if yeah. any that the initial sessions with a costumer and the, the fittings are literally you kind of see the character coming together and mm. I use it as a way to get into who this person is one fabulous thing about Fatal Attraction for me was Adrian Lyne's passion for Alex Forrest and for her look. He had, for months, even before I was cast, had been taking out pictures from magazines Mm -hmm. or wherever he could find it that would have who he thought Alex was. So we spent a lot of time 
testing, doing different looks with hair and, mm -hmm. and subtle makeup. And it's wonderful to have a director care that much because usually they don't. You, funnily <laughs> enough, you would think they would, but usually they don't care who's doing your hair or your makeup. And they very, you know, every now and then might come into the makeup trailer, but Adrian yeah. was passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's a very subliminal thing, but we felt that we had found her on the day that we filled in the dip in my lip, and mm. it made her have this very sad upper lip. And it's a very subtle thing. We filled it in with a little pencil, and all of a sudden you say, there she is. <laughs> She's here. <laughs> and it was that, that one little thing that mm. we finally, besides the hair and all that, it was that little subtle thing with the lip. Could you talk a bit about your, your choices, what you look for in, in choosing a role? And one thing I wanted to ask you about is the sense of, of risk. You love, you've taken on some very adventurous, flamboyant roles, some great vi villains, great difficult roles. To, to do Norma Desmond on stage, I mean, to even take on that challenge of doing that, that role where you could only imagine the film of Gloria Swanson, but to take on such a big flamboyant role. Could you talk about what you, you, know, what you look for? What's your process like in picking roles? I look for what I can only say is kind of elegant writing that has a certain kind of spareness to it that is about behavior. I think a lot of times people, everybody, everybody sitting in this room, we're, we're, we're absolute geniuses in hiding 99% of what's going on in our lives. And the little hints that you get of what's really going on mm -hmm. are usually, in, and sometimes somebody's behavior could, could be the most unexpected thing, but th it's rooted in something that usually ends up being very truthful as far as, as human behavior. I don't like people talking too much or explaining too much. Mm. I like writing that leaves, again, secrets, that you can mm. have secrets, and, and those secrets can have resonance. Uh, even if it's subliminal with the audience. And I think ultimately, I want to connect emotionally. I think I'm seduced by parts that I think have that potential to have a great emotional connection. And then you can only hope that, especially with film, that the camera will be in the right place. Okay, thanks. I do want to give the audience a chance to ask questions, so if you want to ask either about what we just saw or any work, go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'll just repeat. Did you or Michael Douglas sustain any injuries during those brutal I fight did. scenes or love Yeah, I had a yeah. minor concussion. Two things. The scene where he's strangling me, there was one take where he kind of forgot mm. himself. And I thought I was going to pass out. Hmm. And it was very frightening to me because I think my main fear is to suffocate. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm very claustrophobic. So that was very uh, traumatic for me. Yeah. And then in the ending, when he smashes me against the uh, medicine cabinet, it, I think it gave me a bit of a concussion. <laughs> and, and the whole thing in the bathtub was very difficult. Okay, two questions. Would the film have the same impact if it was released today? And comment on the hair. We all wore Alex Fortas's hair. Yeah, very influential um, film. I don't know what impact it would have today because I think it, it came out in such a perfect time, you know, in the mm. context of the times. I can't answer that question, not being a sociologist or whatever it is. I, everybody seems much more aware of film and much more jaded, I would think. <laughs> but I don't, I, I don't know. I, it, 
I can't answer that. And, and the hair was just as I was saying. It was it was the passion of Adrian Lyne. I happened to have naturally wavy hair, and it was long and unkempt, and he liked it. Lenny Kwai, who did my hair, who I'd known since beginning in theater. I had a body perm, and, and she gave order to some of it with these great spiral things that she would put in my hair. But I think that was Adrian, really, who just let it be. I wonder if uh, the producers would let you do your own stunts if, if you were shooting that today. No, I think they would. I like doing my own stunts as much as possible because I just think you don't think somebody moves the way you do. And Again, my dad is a doctor, and all through my career I've, I've called him up about, if somebody's trying to strangle you in the bathtub, <laughs> what really happens? And what would your body do? And I found out from him that, that your throat actually constricts, and you pass out, and then when you come to, you can have these uh, epileptic feelings. So all that is in the movie. So you asked him how long you could stay underwater. Yeah, that's, dead. that's the one yeah. lie of the film. She'd be dead if she was under... And it's not natural. You, your, your body would come up and you'd break the surface and you'd come too. And I think it was Adrian's homage to that movie. Diabolique. Diabolique, where yeah. she, they, they're consciously keeping themselves down. Yeah. They're not, they're not uh, passed out like she is. She's, right. So I kept saying, Adrian... It's not real. What difference does it make if my nose comes you know, through the water? But no, he didn't want it. I did have a stunt girl. The only thing I couldn't do was to have him take my neck and put like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she's doing that. <laughs> but I, I worked my way into doing all everything else. They had uh, several bathtubs. They had one mm. bathtub with an acrylic side that they could shoot through. They had this phenomenal bathtub. They soldered together two bathtubs and made them very deep so that the cameraman could lie on the bottom of the tub with a camera looking up. And then they had the regular set, which for the... It's very funny, actually. We started shooting that the second ending in the 60s in the west side, and we went over and they kicked us out. We ended up shooting my death and all that in the basement of the Unitarian Church in Bedford, New York. (laughs) Really? I kept saying, do they know what we're doing down here? The question about the death of Jenny feels that were you truly distraught by that? that There were days with Alex Forrest that they had to carry me to the car because it was just so physically demanding. It was different for Jenny because John Lennon had been assassinated Hmm. just months before, and I was playing a a character who was assassinated, and it just freaked me out. I I could do the first take. They they rig you up with a little squib, and you feel this little kind of thing on your, your chest. If you ever see the film again, you only see it kind of mid-shot, you never get a close-up because I couldn't do it again. I start start going like that (laughs) because it was so freaky knowing that somewhere in that crowd, even if it was the prop guy, that somebody was pointing a gun at me. That was hard. I just couldn't keep my face from... I was anticipating it too much. How did you prepare yourself for the sex scene? Was it very difficult for you? I worked out a lot. I have the theory that if you work out and your body looks great, who cares? (laughs) 
So I was really buff. I was doing like, you know, five pull-ups and I'm very muscular naturally. And I remember the wonderful day when Adrian Lyons said, I think you've lost enough weight. <laughs> so you're losing weight, losing weight, and then oh, don't lose any more weight. You just don't think about it. But that scene in the kitchen was something that Adrian didn't shoot for a long time because he didn't know how to shoot it. He hadn't come up with his inspiration for it. And he wanted it to be different. He wanted it to be sexy. And then I remember one day he said, kitchen sink, kitchen sink. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we're doing the kitchen sink. There'll be pigeons, there'll be pigeons in the window. <laughs> <laughs> and that was fun because it was not run-of-the-mill and it made it comic as well as kind of real. It was kind of awkward and silly and, you know, so it was fun. But it's a strange dynamic that happens on a movie set if you're with people whose talent you really respect and you, you're, you're asked instantly to trust. And as an actor, there are ways that you can be looking into someone's eyes and at the same time say, you know, it's okay. You can love me and I'll be okay. You can trust, you know, and you can go as far as you want and it will be okay. And I think in a scene like that, it was a fantastic crew. You know, you knew that you were in a protected space even though you were exposed. I tell you that one of the hardest scenes I have ever had to film was the one where I said, I will not be ignored. And I think back on that, and it was agony for me. At one point, I I couldn't find it. I felt really uncomfortable. I remember we stopped, and Adrian had all the crew go out. I think we worked on some of the lines. I think we cut some stuff. And looking back on it, I think I was feeling, I was in that teddy, you know. It's not the kind of thing I go around wearing all the time. (laughs) I felt incredibly vulnerable and exposed as an actor, and it was what was the scene. So looking at the scene now, I think it's something that people remember because it kind of has a truth to it, but it was very hard for me to separate myself from the character. Finally, it wasn't naked. It was wearing that flimsy piece of underwear. It it made me even feel almost more exposed. Was it maybe a more raw scene? I mean, some of the other scenes did have this uh, little bit of comedy that might have helped cut some tension. Michael struggling with his pants around his yeah, ankles. Yeah, and, yeah. Over here? Okay. Uh, you're reading a... I'm not Harold sure Guskin's book? He's okay. a wonderful coach, okay. acting coach. Who says that you're a shy person, but how do you... Well, I say I'm a okay, shy person. Okay, you say you're a shy person, but... <laughs> no, that's really interesting. Um, a lot of the actors that I know whose talent I respect, I would say are shy people. It's kind of this weird thing that you can't do in a room with three people what you can do in a theater full of hundreds or on a movie set, you know, with lights and cameras. And I'm not sure what that is. But why I went to Harold initially was, first of all, I was terrible at auditioning, and I got sick of that, so I wanted his help in that. But also in the initial reading of a character, I could feel shy in front of that character. And I needed help in just screwing up my courage in a room with one person and saying those words and owning those words and slowly getting myself under their skin. The Marquise de Mertoy in in Dangerous Liaison terrified me. And yet I had to play her. And it's like meeting another human being. It's not an instant thing. I've learned to give myself time. 
Hmm. It's like knowing someone else. You, and then you, you hope that you can find some unexpected little window, some little key to, to who that person is or where that connection will happen. And a lot of times you don't know what that's going to be, where you put your voice or how they walk or whatever. But what I love about actors, about all actors, about acting as a profession, is I think they're some of the bravest people I've ever seen. And even bad actors are brave. Because it takes guts to go out there and do what actors do. And I used Harold to kind of get brave because sometimes I needed that. One description I I read about your process was that you jump out a window and then sort of figure it out on your way down or jump into it and let the character define you somehow. Did I say that? I think so. Or you said that. You said that. <laughs> or I think actually a friend of yours describing how you work. Making a leap and yeah. also I think another way that it was put was that you don't define your character, that you let the character define you. That you, you don't do Glenn Close. I don't know if you think it's true that you lose yourself in a character or what the best way to put that is. I think if you lost yourself in the character, <laughs> you'd end up in Bellevue. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's really different stage and screen. The main difference for me is the rehearsal process for theater is a fantastic working out of the whole universe where the character is and then and you learn how to kind of move around in that and when I'm rehearsing I'm always kind of very distracted and thinking all the time just thinking Um, for me film is one long rehearsal it's Mm -hmm. all rehearsal and so you know I'm distracted most of the time you know in theater you get to a point where you can kind of forget it and then you come in the theater, you do the performance, and it's there. You know the, the territory. Film, you don't do a complete performance every day. It's a section of it, and you hope, you only hope that you can find it. The, the great thing about film is you only need one good take. The terrible panic is when you feel that you don't have it and time is ticking away. And that's when you, you hope that you have a director who somehow can whisper something in your ear and and give you a little tiny direction or idea that will just say, oh, and then all of a sudden it's there. But that's a terrifying feeling. My wonderful friend, Ishvan Sabo, who's a Hungarian director, I was doing a difficult scene with him once, and I was really starting to pan, losing my courage a little. I have learned you have to keep jumping off the cliff. You can't lose your courage. And and he, he came up and he said, not to worry, not to worry. We're waiting for the angel. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that you do is you you really have moved in your career between roles where you're really out front and center as the star, the main character, and then you've done a lot of wonderful ensemble films and ensemble work, including the television show that you just did, your new movie, Nine Lies, which is a wonderful ensemble piece. Of course, The Big Chill. So what is the difference for you, or do you see a difference? And you see an ensemble piece, you have a smaller part. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have to worry about carrying the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> now, what is the question? Well, just um, if it's a different process for you when you're doing a project, like Nine Lives, for example. Well, part- our director of Nine Lives is here tonight, Rodrigo right. Garcia. It's uh, nine different stories. Each story is told in one continuous take, and you know, I only did my little story and saw everyone else's work at Sundance this year, and it was one of the things that mm. really made me proud to be an actor. I, uh, mm. Sissy Spacek, Aidan Quinn, Kathy Baker, Holly Hunter, 
Joe Montaigne. This just just incredible work because of Rodrigo and his words. But anyway, I would much rather be in an ensemble surrounded by fabulous people than have to carry something myself. I, I think acting is reflection and uh, reflecting off of somebody and certainly collaborative. So some of my best, most fun times have been with a group. Okay, what, what inspired you to become an actress and what advice would you give to these aspiring actors down in front? I wanted to be an actress once I was really young. Didn't see a lot of film, didn't see theater at all. Mostly watch Walt Disney <laughs> and, you know, Old Yeller and Littlest Outlaw and Snow White. Some of those great classic. I, we lived in the country. We ran around a little gang of us pretending we were cowboys. I was just talking to Rodrigo tonight. I, I think I was very lucky that I was compelled to do it. And what, why? I don't know. My genetic. I had two fabulous grandmothers who should have been actresses. My advice, that's a toughie. <laughs> I don't know if I have any advice. You know, everyone's life is different. It's tough. You have to have that crazy, unreasonable belief in yourself, and yet you still have to kind of have an objectivity about what you need and where to go and just try to find work. You know, I know how hard that is, so <laughs> good luck. The last question right here. Okay, so just specifically about the working process with Adrian, sort of shooting a scene, and if there's anything that makes him unique as a director. Well, I don't know if I can do that, because it was a while ago. I don't know if I can do kind of a beat-by-beat thing. But what Adrian did, he was so on his game, wildly creative. He also, which I think was important in the whole chemistry of the set, he had two very strong producers supporting him and pulling him back when he would be pulled back. He, they, they kind of gave him a strong structure, and if he had to you know, knock heads with somebody, they were there. You know, we never knew if there were any fights, what they were about. It, they were, it wasn't, you know, had nothing to do with us. Um, I think it really helped Adrian to have some really strong producers around him. He just, for me, was able to help me out of, help me find the truth of the scene where I have slipped my wrists and you don't discover it until you see it on his face. I remember there was a certain stage direction in the script that I think said she laughed. I try to make everything that the writer writes work. And I was trying to make that moment work laughing and it just it just wasn't hacking it you know again you think where to go or what's going on here and then i i think he glommed onto that and he and he said don't throw that all out don't worry about that and the truth of that moment is that she's terrified she's just cut her wrists it's a desperate attempt to get help when I didn't have to worry about fulfilling this one little word, you know, something you can get really stupid about that. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I felt very free to let the moment happen. So my friend Chris Walken, the first thing he does is just get a big fat black sharpie and he 
scores out all the stage directions and the punctuation. <laughs> so it's just little tiny things like that that can really uh, be difficult. And yet, you know, Adrian can help you. You know, he helped me out of it. He helped me get over the hump. That's not what your question, because I don't know if I can really do that. What's amazing is this, this film has certainly stood the test of time, because this is a vibrant, powerful performance today, 18 years later after it came out. So thanks for being with us to share it and to talk yeah. about it. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.